Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Pro Bono Pod. This is the fourth episode in our series on behalf of the KCL Pro Bono Society, one of the largest student-run pro bono organizations in the UK. Our podcast aims to discuss and raise awareness about a range of issues from gender equality to the death penalty with a panel of lawyers, academics, charities, NGOs, activists, and more. My name is Tin Hay, and I'm the media officer at KCL Pro Bono, and I'm back for a second episode to host a very exciting interview. I'm incredibly honored to be joined by I, Stephanie Boyce, the 177th sixth female, first black and first person of color, and second in-house solicitor in almost 50 years to become president of the Law Society of England and Wales. Stephanie also sits as a trustee of Law Works, among other positions. And today in the podcast, we will be asking her about her career journey, her aspirations to the legal profession, as well as her advice for students. Welcome, Stephanie. To get to know your motivations and your vision better, I really want to learn about why you decided to pursue a legal career initially. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Well, absolutely. It has always been my ambition to enter the legal profession. From as young as I can remember at the age of seven, I grew up surrounded by injustices and I saw people across the world struggling to enforce or even access their rights. So after my family moved to the United States of America at the age of 12, America would have a lasting impression upon me and I would be overwhelmed by the, the, the poverty, people struggling to exercise their rights because of their low socioeconomic position, because of the colour of their skin, people having little or no rights. And so for me, that's what inspired me to become a solicitor, to enter a career where I could help people to exercise those fundamental legal rights. That's extremely incredible to hear. And as an aspiring solicitor myself, I feel that a lot of our students are motivated by mission. And that's just something that we all have in common. During your journey, did you experience any challenges? And could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, absolutely. I experienced challenges. I mean, the first, I guess I would say is that, you know, after four attempts, it took me four attempts to be successfully elected as Deputy Vice President of the Law Society of England and Wales. And just to put that into context, once you're elected as Deputy Vice President, it is then an automatic trajectory to become President as I did in March 2021. But if I go back you know, to 1985, you know, my family relocated, as I said, to the United States. Even though I lived there for the next six years, I always knew in my heart of hearts that I would return to the United Kingdom to study law. So in 1991, a day or so after finishing high school, I returned to the UK and so began my legal career. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I came across my uh, first barrier upon discovering that my US qualifications would not be recognised here at that time. But thanks to the access to qualification route, higher uh, qualification route, I was able to enter London Guildhall University in 1996. And I subsequently graduated from London Guildhall with an LB honours with politics. After that, I progressed to the legal practice course at the College of Law in Guildford. But again, barrier, you know, I was unable to secure a training contract. Yeah. But thanks to the steadfast encouragement of my father, I secured a training contract in my hometown, uh, in the town in which I then lived. So I qualified in 2002 and joined my first in-house team a few years later. And then I went on to complete my master's degree in public law and global governance at King's College uh, uh, (laughs) later. But 
I always had a desire to represent the profession, and I still do. You know, a profession that I fought so hard to become part of, you know, having been told that because of my low socioeconomic position, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, coming from a single-parent household, living on a council estate, that I would not make it in the field of law. And, of course, here I am as president of the Law Society of England and Wales. That's so inspiring and one of the major reasons why you're such a role model and a symbol for our students from vulnerable backgrounds and people who want to pursue a career in law. Some of your roles, such as your involvement in law works, aim to directly increase the provision of legal aid and free legal advice. Mm. As a pro bono society, we find that this is what people tend to associate pro bono work with. However, we also view our work to encompass a broader notion of access to justice and increasing legal literacy and efficiency. And I understand that you are as equally passionate about public legal education and increasing access to justice. So... What are some pressing issues that are surrounding access to justice right now, in your opinion, especially after the whirlwind that the pandemic has put the legal system through? If I can talk first about public legal education. Yeah. For me, legal rights mean absolutely nothing if you don't know when those rights are being taken away or indeed you don't even know how to access those rights. And of course, the London Legal Walk Trust estimates that some two-thirds of the adults in the United Kingdom do not know where to go to to get legal advice. Mm -hmm. And another 15 million of those adults live under the poverty line. Even if they did know, they wouldn't be able to afford legal advice anyway. So we know from successive governments that there has been underinvestment in our justice system, particularly in our criminal justice system and indeed in our civil legal aid um, system. We encourage the government to invest in our justice system. We cannot claim to have the best justice system globally if our justice system is crumbling. And we need to ensure that the public's understanding of the law and their rights within it. And for some, their first experience of the justice system will come at an extremely stressful time. And that is perhaps when they are in the midst of a civil dispute or a serious criminal allegation. And that is not an ideal time to be finding out about how the law works. So by educating people about the law at an early age, we can give them a firm grip on their legal rights and an understanding of why the justice system matters. We need to get the public thinking about our justice system as a national treasure, like they do the NHS. And so, you know, encouraging more people to think about why funding our courts and legal aid system is so important is how we will get the government to properly invest, continuously to invest in our justice system. And I'm absolutely a big advocate for teaching law in schools because I believe teaching law starts there. The law impinges every part of our lives. You cannot get away from it. So let's teach our children in all schools that they are taught about the law. This is an incredible movement of just systemic change that needs to happen within our society if people were to be educated about the law. Um, How do you aim to achieve these goals of public legal education? Well, firstly, by advocating for law to be taught in schools. uh, As I say, the earlier the better. So the Law Society has previously supported the big legal lesson to help primary and secondary school children develop a better understanding of the law. 
And I also believe that this will demystify the legal world and help more people to consider a legal career and take those early steps that can help prepare them for one. If I take my own situation, it was not until I was second year at university before I thought about or knew that I had to uh, apply for work experience, apply for funding, mm. because I didn't have those connections. I wasn't able to tap into those networks to ask those questions because I didn't know a solicitor. I didn't know anyone who was, you know, legally qualified. How do we or how will I ensure some of the steps that can be taken to ensure that law is taught in school? First of all, the call to action. Join me in calling on the government to ensure that law is taught in all schools. And I know there is a strong desire for us to join in chorus, because when we join in chorus, we raise our voices and how loud do we become? It's imperative that we are taught law in schools, our children are taught law in schools, so they grow up with a better understanding, as I say, of our justice system and how the law impinges upon them. But also, some of the things that we can do, we know that there are organisations out there through pro bono work, through going into schools, who already do great work in teaching law and teaching individuals about their rights and enabling individuals to access justice. And I absolutely applaud those organisations, those individuals who give selflessly to ensure that people know about their rights and can access justice. So to continue to do this, but of course... Pro bono should not be a substitute for a properly funded legal aid system. And if you ask most people about legal aid, most people think that we still have, or legal aid is still available for most aspects if they have a legal issue. And the reality is, as we know, that is not true. So greater awareness around our legal aid system, greater awareness around law, as we're on the topic of talking about why legal aid is so incredibly important, after the last two years of unprecedented challenges, the legal aid system has never been more precarious. And what are your thoughts, Stephanie, about the current legal aid system? The current legal aid system is not fit for purpose. And as I said, it is not sustainable. I spoke earlier about the need to fund the legal aid system, our criminal legal aid properly, and that is the best route to sustainability. On the criminal side, another important step to take is implementing the other changes to the administration of legal aid recommended by the independent review of the criminal legal aid chaired by Sir Christopher Bellamy, such as restricting how rates work and putting in place an advisory board to support decision making in the justice system. Civil legal aid is also facing similar pressures. There has been no significant increase in civil legal aid since the 1990s. And as a result, we are now seeing the emergence of vast legal aid deserts across the country where there is no local access to a civil legal aid provider. That means huge parts of this country, if they need legal advice, they will struggle to be able to get that advice through a legally qualified practitioner. So the Law Society wants to see the return of legal aid for early advice in civil justice, which would help support sustainability of the system. And by having a layer involved at the earliest possible point, you can find, will find, that legal issues can be resolved quickly, and in many cases, without going to court. But not only that, but they will possibly stem the domino effect of issues, legal issues 
getting out of control. So, for instance, somebody who faces eviction, losing their home, may have other issues associated with health um, and so forth, or debt. Whereas if somebody had been able to access legal advice earlier, some of those issues could have been dealt with that would have negated either them losing their home or indeed having to go to court. It is just so incredibly important to make legal aid more sustainable. And on that note, the current legal aid means test is a barriers of justice for so many of the vulnerable in society. And as an advocate for diversity and inclusion in the legal atmosphere, not only are you a symbol of hope for so many aspiring solicitors from BAME background, you're a driving force for inclusion within the legal community. Um, can you talk about some of the initiatives that you have done so far to encourage diversity in and outside of the law society? Well, absolutely. First of all, one of the greatest initiatives that I've been involved in is to speak about it, you know, continuously, openly and drive uh, diversity. And when I speak, you know, about diversity, one cannot speak about diversity without speaking about inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I speak across the board because for me, we must have a genuinely accessible profession that regardless of your background, your sexuality, your gender, your uh, disability, religion, any of those characteristics, that this is a genuinely accessible profession where individuals with the skills, the aptitude and the ability can stay in this profession, thrive in this profession and progress in this profession. And where those barriers exist, as I say, we must ensure that those barriers are dismantled. I've often said that my mission as president of the Law Society is to leave the profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. And as I say, it must be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. And throughout my presidency, this has been my guiding goal. And I am proud of the work we, the Law Society, have done so far. And we will continue to achieve it. So to give you a few examples of the work that we have done, we have signed up to the 10,000 Black Interns Initiative. And that programme, of course, offers uh, paid work experience across over 20 sectors, including the law, and creates a sustainable cycle of mentorship and sponsorship from those from the Black community. We have also initiated roundtables that seek to look at the experiences of Black, Asian and uh, minority ethnic solicitors in the profession, as well as social mobility under the auspice of the ACT umbrella uh, and ACT Achieving Change Together. Because the issue of diversity in the profession is not just a solicitor issue, it is a legal profession issue. And therefore, uh, I took the initiative to combine and call to action the legal community members of the Solicitors Regulation Authority, the Bar Standards Board, the Bar Council, Silex, to join us in chorus as to how we can talk about change. And of course, we've seen a number of initiatives come out from uh, uh, different parts of the legal profession to address some of the issues within our own communities. And also, I've spoken very openly about the lack of diversity in the judiciary. It is imperative that if we are to keep the confidence of the public, the communities that we are seeking to serve, that our profession reflects those communities. And in turn, we must challenge the harmful stereotypes that exist and break down those barriers, as indeed I am doing as president. 
you have done so incredibly much to open the doors for people from minority backgrounds. And it is continually exciting, the work that you do. Another thing that you talk about wanting to drive is a conversation for mental health in the legal space, Mm -hmm. especially after the pandemic. Mental health has become something that law firms um, and solicitors alike are increasingly paying more attention to. But it isn't something that had been in conversation, say, a couple of years ago. So what has been your role in encouraging open and inclusive conversation about mental health in the legal profession and moving away from the taboo that it was? Mm. You're right. Mental health and well-being was not something we spoke openly about. It was slightly taboo. But the pandemic has placed great physical and mental strain on many, necessitating a renewed focus on the mental health and well-being. And law care recorded a sharp increase in the number of legal professionals seeking help for anxiety and stress. So one of the things I did is that I initiated the presidential charities. So there are three charities that I support during my presidential term, and that is uh, the Sutton Trust in respect of my ambitions around social mobility and equality, diversity and inclusion. Law care, um, which I'll speak a bit more about shortly, and Access to Justice Foundation. Law care does extremely important work. And because of speaking to solicitors across the country, I have been impressed with the myriad of initiatives that have emerged in our profession to address the vital need of mental health and well-being, from the Be Kind initiative to the Conveyancing Foundation and staff-led peer groups. And I've spoken about my own challenges, you know, during lockdown. But speaking about it openly and supporting law care has really helped to drive the focus and those initiatives. And we must celebrate and support and talk openly about our mental health and well-being as we do our physical health. We don't think twice about telling people we're going to the gym or what we're doing to enhance our physical health. But good mental health and well-being must be valued and encouraged. And where environments do not facilitate this, change must be realised. I want those who are listening to know that you're not on your own. The Law Society has a range of resources, articles and webinars to help with this issue. And we must continue to be at the forefront of talking openly uh, and collectively about mental health and well-being in the legal profession. Thank you for spearheading the conversation for mental health, because it is only the start of increased conversation and increased priority in law firms and amongst people in the legal profession alike. As you were saying earlier, would you mind talking a bit more about the challenges that you faced during lockdown? Oh, absolutely. When the Prime Minister gave that instruction on the 23rd of March 2020, I think that date is embedded in all of our minds. Those words resonated so much so But I had already taken some steps. My last day in Chancery Lane was the 13th of March and I was due the following week to go to Leeds and I believe Liverpool. And I walked out of that building on the 13th of March and said, I'm not coming back until this passes. Well, little did I know that the doors of Chancery Lane would remain shut for 15 months plus, that almost two years later, we are still in the grips of a global pandemic. So for me, um, having walked out of the door on the 13th of March, one of the things that happened was that my little nephew uh, came to stay with me. I live on my own. For the first six weeks, he was there with me. 
And of course, we didn't know what we were dealing with. We were told, you know, you could only go outside. Uh, So I went from being free as a bird to thinking twice about stepping outside my own front door. When we went out to the shop, which was every four days, my instructions to him was, you touch nothing. You know, if you want something, you tell me, I will touch it. You know, I had gloves on. We were masked up. For the first time, stepping around people as you walked past them in the streets. You know, the front door that wouldn't open for days because one was mindful that you potentially were breaking the law if you did not have legal reason to go out of uh, your home. So our home suddenly became, for some people, you know, our jail. So after six weeks, my little nephew went back home and I remained on my own doing this role as vice president and then as president. But trying to entertain yourself, trying to keep yourself motivated because I couldn't see my family. And then Christmas 2020, I had to isolate, not because I had COVID, but because I had come into contact with somebody. That was the first Christmas in my life that I had spent on my own. I have to say that I had a good time, though. But, (laughs) you know, um, mother coming to the door and handing me my food on Christmas Day, there is no doubt that it has had an effect. So we've all been touched and challenged by this pandemic. And I'm curious and interested as to how history will record this. But it's important, as I say, one shouldn't fear talking openly about the challenges that we have faced in dealing with this, as we have tried to keep ourselves and others safe. It's important that if we are struggling with some of those challenges, that we do seek help because there is a multitude of those out there who are willing to help. It is so motivating to hear somebody from your position who is a role model for many of us to speak about her challenges and speak about the light and motivations that she found within it. And then you still manage to spearhead so many of the initiatives that you have done as president. And that is so motivating for a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast. And if I'm honest you know, spearheading those initiatives, confronting those challenges has been a big force in getting me through the pandemic and the time that I have spent uh, on my own. So absolutely. That is something that a lot of our listeners resonate with and incredibly inspiring to hear. To close this discussion and on this note, you pass your figurative torch over as president in October to the Law Society's first ever Asian president. With a 19-month appointment, how do you plan on ensuring continuity in the initiatives that you have started? Just to explain, the president normally serves for a one-year term, but due to the pandemic um, and other issues, it uh, meant that I served for 19 months. And I'm grateful for my colleagues for allowing me to do so. So I will hand over the torch to Lubna Shuja, who becomes, as you say, our first Asian president, and also the first time that a woman will hand over to another woman. And of course, in December 2022, we will celebrate as a profession 100 years of the first woman being admitted as a solicitor, Carrie Morrison. So these times are times for hope and, you know, great opportunities. So an exciting time. So Vice President Shuja is committed to ensuring, as I am, that the change, the, the programme of work continues 
And she's followed by Deputy Vice President Nick Emerson, who is also committed to ensuring that the programme of work that has started continues, that we are committed to effecting change. And that work will not stop. You know, um, when I leave office, I will obviously continue to advocate and speak openly about the challenges and the opportunities that are there. But both, as I say, Nick and Lubna are committed to ensuring that the work continues. And of course, they will bring their own experiences and their own thoughts to the work and the role of president. I can't wait to learn about the possibilities that this era of change is going to start. And I can't wait to see what you in turn achieve after your position as president, because I know the sky is the limit right now. To close this conversation, as I said earlier, you're a role model for so many, so many aspiring solicitors like myself. What advice would you give to your younger self right now? The advice that I would give to my younger self is that every door is open if you push. You persevere until something happens. You owe it to yourself and to the world to never give up. You know, as I say, if you have a dream that is keeping you awake at night, you owe it to yourself to bring it to life. Because if you don't do it, you'll be watching someone else do it. So absolutely never give up. Run your own race. Write your own story. I know you've spoken about when you were trying to get into the legal career with all of the obstacles that you faced, that you found connecting with people and networking as a great tool to help you get a foot through the door. So do you mind um, talking a bit more about your experiences and advice that you have in the area? Absolutely. I am in no doubt that I could not have got to where I've got to today without those networks, those sponsors, those mentors, known and unknown, who have advocated for me, spoken up for me and supported me. One piece of advice that I was given, that I did take as a younger solicitor from another solicitor, was to network. And I didn't understand what I was being told at the time. I would subsequently learn what that meant. So as the pandemic wanes and those opportunities come back to network, to be in a physical space with someone, or to reach out to them on social media. You must take those opportunities. You must put yourself forward. And as I say, you must never give up. And I volunteered for everything. And I remember a friend saying to me, Stephanie, what are you doing? You're volunteering for everything, getting paid to do none of it. You know, what is your, what are you doing? And I said, I have a plan. I said, watch and see, I have a plan. I didn't know what that plan was, but what those roles allowed me to do, I got to work and sit beside some of the best legal minds that this country had to offer. They got to see and hear from me. And that's why I believe that in-person events are so important. Technology provides a space. It provides an alternative for us to engage with each other. But being in a room, in a space with others, I picked up on some of those social cues that perhaps I had not known before. I was able to speak to people. And as I say, they got to hear from me. They got to see how I worked when perhaps those opportunities had not existed elsewhere. So as I say, if the opportunity presents itself, grab it with both hands. And if it doesn't, create it. 
growing your circle and building meaningful connections with people who are in the legal network is so incredibly important, especially since there's so many candidates who are trying to go into the legal profession nowadays. So thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming and speaking with us today. Let's do a slight recap here. The Law Society first admitted women members in 1922. And a century later, we now have our first sitting black female president, I, Stephanie Boyce. This is a signal that changes here, and diversity has taken a front and center stage in the legal profession. It is incredibly empowering and inspiring to see you at the helm. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences, insights, and vision for the future with us today. That's it for the fourth episode of Pro Bono Pod, and we will see you in our next episode. Thank you for coming. Thank you.